Welcome to the podcast. Hi, everyone. For the next few months, we're going to share a bit of bonus content. We're sharing six episodes of ZigZag, a business podcast about being human that is also part of the TED Audio Collective. These six episodes are organized around one goal, to help listeners align their values with their work. And if you keep listening, you'll also hear a guest appearance from me. Now let's tune into ZigZag, hosted by Manoush Zamarodi. Hey everyone, it's Manoush, and I want to thank our partner, Jobs Ohio, for their support. On this season of ZigZag, we are resetting our careers and businesses, sparking ideas for a new strategy, and then creating a roadmap. And this is a subject near and dear to our partner, Jobs Ohio. They are focused on creating more jobs in communities across the state by helping businesses sustain and grow and by attracting new companies to the state. Jobs Ohio has been working especially hard during these tough times to keep developing an economy where companies can thrive and individuals can have a better standard of living. Please learn more about the work that Jobs Ohio is doing by visiting ohioisforleaders.com. That's O-H-I-O-I-S-F-O-R-L-E-A-D-E-R-S.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Robinhood. You've probably been hearing a lot about the stock market lately, and you can probably tell something big is happening. For the first time ever, millions of people are beginning to invest, possibly changing the market as we know it. And it's become clear that the financial system should be built to work for everyone. That's why Robinhood is creating real human education resources, digestible financial news, and a platform that lets you invest your own way on your own terms. The next generation of investors is here, and it includes you. To learn more, visit www.robinhood.com. And a disclosure that investing is risky. Robinhood Financial, LLC. Hi, Manoush. I would describe this moment in my career as a roller coaster and stuck, or maybe a stuck roller coaster. I would describe this moment in my career as stagnant and confusing. I would describe this moment in my career slash business as dormant and directionless. Emergent and a restructuring. Weird, transitional, zigzagging period of lull and grief. Oh yeah, listeners, this is a really weird time for a lot of us, for most of us, when it comes to work, our businesses, and our lives. And I wish that I could get a clear vision of where I ultimately want to go so that I can figure out how to chart a path to get there. We have had to shelve so many of our big plans and rethink what the heck comes next. Where to begin? I wish I could just be patient. And I wish I would just fast forward to when my business is established. I wish I could figure out what that next direction should be. This is ZigZag, the business podcast about being human. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and this new season is something I'm calling the ZigZag Project. Six episodes to get you from stuck to inspired. Every two weeks, you'll learn about an issue in work and business 
an idea about how to make it better with stories from listeners and insight from the folks who inspired me to come up with an assignment for you to do. The assignments might remind you of ones you've done in the past. Maybe you've done career workshops or something, or it might be completely new to you. But I do hope you'll join us because I have run interactive projects with thousands of listeners before. And knowing that you are waking up in the morning trying to figure something out and thousands of other people are doing it too, it is an incredible feeling. Will we solve all your problems? Probably not. Well, I don't know, maybe, who knows. But more likely, we're going to put some fire in your belly and get you to make a concrete plan. Because this past year has made clear that the way we work has maxed out our psyches and our planet. It's also, of course, left us unprepared to support the most vulnerable in our communities during the worst of times. And many of you have told me because of the last year, your ambitions have changed. You are defining success differently and you want to align your work with what you want to see in the world. You're ready for a reset. All right, Manoush. I would describe this moment in my career as stagnant and unfulfilling. And I wish I could find something more contributive. I think I just made up a word there, but the, you get the idea. I want to contribute more to society. And uh, I'm trying to figure out a way to do it. Oh, I like that word, contributive. Yeah, so unlike the usual career or startup guidebooks or podcasts, this project has a twist. It's not just about finding a new job or what color your parachute is. It's about considering really deeply how you can align your personal values with your professional ambitions in a post-2020 economy. And that is going to mean very different things for different people. A couple months ago, 150 listeners volunteered to beta test the ZigZag project. They gave me feedback on the assignments, they shared their hopes and their fears, and they took a pretty lengthy survey anonymously, which turned up lots of fascinating data points. All of that has been compiled into this six-episode season for anyone. So listen along to all six episodes, or better yet, join us. Do the exercises. See if you can find your next zig or zag. And I'll tell you more about where you can get more info at the end of the show. For now, off we go. In 2020, our lives were dictated by the headlines. The pandemic, racial injustice, a fraught election here in the U.S., intense natural disasters. And we saw the world differently because we were alone or couldn't get away from our family, because we got sick or we realized how lucky we were to stay healthy, because maybe we lost our jobs or we saw how fortunate we were to continue making more money than most. Now, more than a quarter of American workers don't have a job that lifts them above the poverty level. Millions of small businesses have scaled back or closed entirely. A quarter of adults in the U.S. say that they or someone in their household was laid off or lost their job because of the coronavirus outbreak, with 15% saying it happened to them personally. And that is pretty much what ZigZag Project beta testers told me too. 13% reported losing their job. 
But let's get into the nuance of what you told me, because that's pretty illuminating. Of those listeners who took the ZigZag Project survey, 70% were women. Now, women are more likely to respond to surveys, so I'll take that with a grain of salt. And on the whole, this group has some advantages. Most of you say you've got a college degree or higher. Many of you are married or have a partner, so you've got some backup. A quarter of you say you run your own business, but only one person had to shut down. And now, here's the data point where things, I think, get really interesting. 40% of you say that big social issues have always been at the heart of who you are and what you do. But another 20%, one out of five, say that 2020 changed your understanding of the world and social issues. And you want that to be reflected in your work going forward. If that statistic translates to the workforce at large, even just a little bit, we could see some huge and interesting shifts in how people work and do business in years to come. Your top issues were climate change, wealth disparity, and racial injustice. And I mean, ZigZag listeners, you're obviously motivated people. You're listening to the show, right? And beta testers, you especially, you volunteered to be my guinea pigs. But I heard lots of folks say they are balancing this strange sense of optimism right now with feeling freaked out and exhausted. I would like to describe this moment in my career as fun but muddy, exciting and scary. I would like to float sometimes, not the constant swimming and to survive. Just some moments to exhale would be really nice. Hi, Manoush. This is Megan from Michigan. And I would describe this moment in my career as frustrating and uplifting. And I wish I could figure out why. I would describe this moment in my career as a transition point and full of promise. And I wish I could get started now. Yeah, I get that. And those of you who are feeling flat out miserable right now, no sense of optimism, it's okay. You have company too. I would describe this moment in my career as a body blow and total blindside. And I wish I could respond. I would describe this moment in my career slash business as non-existent and lacking energy and time. I would describe this moment in my career as transitional and testing the limits of my tolerance to anxious thoughts and feelings. Yeah, those anxious thoughts translated into 60% of our beta testers saying that they think about making a big change in their life and work at least once a day, if not multiple times a day. But there's something you need to know. All that thinking about making a change, that is not ruminating. That is doing some hard mental work. Doesn't necessarily feel good, but it is a good thing. What I mean exactly, and your first assignment after the break. Hey, ZigZag listeners, it's Manoush. I want to take a second to thank our sponsor for today's episode, Jobs Ohio. 
One reason why I love sharing ideas with you is because it's an opportunity to help make even a small difference in the way that you think. And making a difference is a core value for Jobs Ohio. They believe that economic development is about creating a place where companies can thrive and individuals can enjoy a higher standard of living. The folks at Jobs Ohio play a leading role in economic development, sparking and accelerating growth by investing in communities. To learn more about how Jobs Ohio is helping Ohio businesses expand and how they're attracting new companies to the state, go to ohioisforleaders.com. That's O-H-I-O-I-S-F-O-R-L-E-A-D-E-R-S dot com. And thanks. So maybe you remember, on the last season of ZigZag, I had a fabulous conversation with Chaplain Greg Epstein. Greg is the humanist chaplain at MIT and Harvard, and he writes about tech and ethics. And we got super deep into resetting how we can possibly reset the tech industry's moral compass. But months after we taped that interview, Greg told me about a concept that has nothing to do with the tech industry— and a lot to do with rethinking how we live and work. Maybe you've already heard of the neutral zone? I had not. Here's Greg. Hi, Manoush. It is Greg Epstein here, and I'm finally getting a chance to record this voice memo for you. You asked me to catch you up on what feels like an absolute lifetime since we talked everybody questioning everything, rightly so, about what it means to live in this country, what it means to be a student, what it means to be a person of faith or an atheist or a humanist, or what it means to be a chaplain or a critic of the tech industry. There really is a desperate call for support for people who are trying to figure out how to live meaningfully in this time. I find myself having these conversations in my head every single day about what does it mean to cope with a pandemic like this? Is our life ever going to be the same? Is this the fall of the American empire? You know, should I radically re-envision my own future? Uh, should I radically re-envision my child's future? Of course, the answers are yes, 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 yes. But you know, the specifics are really important. And so I've been thinking a lot about some writing that I read a few years ago when I was zigzagging out of my work with my congregation where I was deciding to stop doing my congregational work. I read a couple books by an academic uh, named William Bridges who studied life transition. He died several years ago, but um, his wife, Susan Bridges, now continues his work. They've got an institute, uh, the William and Susan Bridges Institute, where they study life transition. And essentially, William Bridges' model is as follows. He analyzed data over uh, decades of people experiencing life transitions and what he found was that a life transition begins not with a new beginning, like getting a new job or um, starting a new school or going back to school after a pandemic. Um, a life transition begins with an ending. 
with a sense that something in your mind, even if not in the external circumstances, has come to a major end point and you don't know what's next. And he then found that the most successful people in terms of getting to a sense of a new beginning after a major ending in their relationship or their career or their studies or their family or whatever it was, the people who did the best at getting to a sense of a fulfilling and satisfying and meaningful new beginning were not the ones who moved quickly from the end point to their next point, but rather were the ones who allowed themselves an extended period of what Bridges calls a neutral zone. Could be several months, could be years of not knowing where we're headed. The neutral zone. So here's how William Bridges describes his concept in a video he made before his death in 2013. Phase two of transition is the neutral zone. Most organizations don't even have a name for it, much less a way to get people through it. And because they're in a hurry to get the change finished, they figure that the best way to deal with this in-between time is to rush through it. Here's where you need to distinguish change from transition. It's true that you need to keep the change moving, but to try to hurry through the transition gets you into trouble. It is in the neutral zone that the real transformations take place and that energy, purpose, and commitment are renewed. This place that many view as just wasted time is actually precious. Bridges mostly applied his ideas to companies getting taken over or reorganizing. Maybe your business has used his framework for figuring out your transitions. I hadn't heard of him, but I've realized that the research that I've done in the book I wrote about using boredom as a productivity tool for the mind isn't actually all that different. Anyway, I digress. The point is, first comes an ending, then this neutral time, which is supposed to be full of confusion and stress. Bridges said that Western culture doesn't make time or space for a tough period like this. We want to rush and begin anew already, but we shouldn't. And Greg, Chaplain Greg, is trying to spread this message right now because it is so applicable in all our lives. Psychologically speaking, it's the sense that we allow ourselves this time to not know. And that's what I want to say as a quote-unquote observer of humanity. Um, it's what I'm trying to say to as many students and and even professors and deans and line cooks and whoever else I get a chance to talk to, you know, Uber drivers or whatever, although I haven't gotten in a car um, other than my own in a long time. It's allow ourselves the time not to know. Yeah. Give yourself some permission not to know. And please, if it's helpful, think of the zigzag project as your neutral zone, your place to sit with all the ideas and, yes, emotions that are going to come up. Which brings us to your first mission, should you choose to accept it. You are going to take your own pulse, survey yourself, and observe where you are right now, before even trying to figure out where you're going. Don't think about your next career move or try to pin down your ambitions. Just be with your brain. Rev your engine in neutral. Today has two parts. Together, these assignments will probably take you between 20 to 30 minutes, but absolutely feel free to take more time and don't rush. 
And also, don't overthink your answers. Try to just go with it and enjoy taking this time to think about yourself, okay? All right, so the first is fill in the blanks. You have been hearing beta testers throughout this episode doing it. Here's the sentence, right? I would describe this moment in my life and career as blank and blank. And I wish I could blank. I would describe this moment in my career business as completely new and uncharted. And I wish I could keep moving through it. I would describe this moment in my career and business as new and unpredictable. And I wish I could see the future. I would describe this moment in my career business as stuck and starting to generate new ideas. And I wish I could figure out how to split my time between my current project and the new one. I would describe this moment in my business as strenuous and frightening. And I wish I could make the days last longer. I would describe this moment in my career as perplexing and frustrating. Uh, I wish I could have uh, advanced into a role where I feel like I'd be making a real difference to people. I didn't even realize that's how I was feeling about work until, until I read it now. I would describe this moment in my career as fragmented and detached. And uh, I wish I could fix that. Trying to fix it will come soon, really soon, but we're not there yet. For now, fill in your blanks. Again, go with the first ideas that pop in your mind. Don't overthink it and do not judge yourself, for heaven's sake. (laughs) But if you are inspired to do so, record yourself, record your sentence and send it to me at zigzag at stableg.com. And after that, please make sure to take the self-reflective survey. I ask you questions to help you consider how you are thinking about money and vacations and creativity right now, all kinds of things. Go to zigzagpod.com, click on the link. Your responses and your data will be anonymized. Unfortunately, because I'm such a privacy freak, I cannot send you a copy of your answers. But, you know, if you feel like they could be useful later, go ahead and take some screenshots of your responses. Oh, and one more thing. After you take the survey, just observe what questions your brain starts mulling over. Let those ideas marinate. Okay, so I'm going to see you in two weeks when we move on to step two of this process. And we get some help from conflict resolution expert Priya Parker. For a period of my life, probably eight years, I began to realize the importance of vision and clarity and conscious decision making. And I wanted to understand how to help people get very, very, very clear on on their sense of purpose. The method Priya put me through years ago that made a huge difference in my life and work, I'm going to get you to do it too. A little bit different. If you know someone who you think should join our little experiment, please tell them about the show. If you'd like to do this process with extra added information and links to all the stuff I mentioned in the episode, plus articles I think you might like reading while you go through this, please sign up for the newsletter. It's at zigzagpod.com. You can always find me at my other job as host of NPR's TED Radio Hour. Oh, and yeah, you can also email me anytime at zigzag at stableg.com. Tell me how this zigzag project thing is going for you. 
Many thanks to audio engineers and composers David Herman and Dan DeZula, to Lauren Reimer for this season's illustration. ZigZag is a member of the TED Audio Collective and comes from Stable Genius Productions. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and thank you so much for listening. Hey, we have a different kind of sponsor for today's episode. It's actually a podcast that's sponsoring this podcast. And that podcast is The Jordan Harbinger Show. You might recognize that name because Jordan's been on this show a couple times, and I wanna point you toward his direction. You can check out his podcast in the app that you're in right now. Jordan's show, which Apple actually named one of the best 2018 podcasts, is aimed at making you better informed, a more critical thinker, so you can get a sense of how the world actually works, and you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. And each episode is this super in-depth conversation with super fascinating people. I mean, I'm talking people like hostage negotiators with the FBI, Kobe Bryant, Malcolm Gladwell. Those are some of my favorite episodes, and I catch an episode all the time from Jordan, and it's some of the most insightful, amazing conversations. If you might remember him on this podcast, some of the best and well-responded to shows that we've had, in fact, and I continually reference them. And so I highly recommend you check out Jordan's show. It's always useful, always practical. And if you wanna check it out, go to jordanharbinger.com slash start, or you can go to Jordan Harbinger, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever you wanna listen to. Again, there's just so many great stuff. Chris Hadfield, who is an astronaut. Guy Raz from How I Built This. Just, there's so many great things. It's it's crazy. You gotta check it out, Jordan Harbinger Show, get it. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that's keeping you from happiness or preventing you from reaching your goals? Well, this has been a really hard year, of course, as we all know, and I know that sometimes even I need some help from the outside with the struggles that I'm having, and that's where BetterHelp comes in. They give you access to licensed and accredited psychologists, therapists, and counselors, all from the comfort of your own home. They're gonna assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist who can start communicating with you in less than 48 hours. And you're gonna be able to connect with them in a safe and private online environment that makes therapy convenient and less intimidating. You can message your counselor at any time and you'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions if you need more hands-on communication. This is not a crisis line, just FYI. It's not a self-help line. It is a professional counseling service done securely online. And so many people have been using it, in fact, that they're now recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. So I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com SPI. You can join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash SPI. If you're a content creator, one amazing strategy you can use, I just wanna give this to you up front, is to after you post something, after you share something, when you see that it's getting a great response, don't just be like, yay, got a great response. We wanna go deeper with that because that's a sign that people wanna learn more, that something about that thing that you published mattered to people, so let's highlight it even more. And that's exactly what we're doing today because last year, in 2020, the content team decided to share more success stories from the SPI audience on the blog. So we have a success story series that a lot of people have been enjoying. And there was one in particular that was published July 24th, 2020, featuring a man who could help us become better communicators. 
And what better way to communicate with somebody who can help us communicate than to communicate on a podcast where we could hear his voice and get some learning from none other than Kalar Sonaki. His full name is actually Kalar Reilly Sonaki from greatspeech.co. And I'll tell you, this interview, and you hear me say it several times closer to the end, is definitely gonna be one for the ages because the tactics, the strategies, the approach that you can take with the words that you use, but not only that, the way you interact with the person you're communicating with, it's just unmatched in terms of what this can do for you. So highly recommend you take notes on this one, you sit and listen in. Kalar has an amazing voice, in fact, that's very easy to listen to. And that's what I love about these interviews. I learn at the same time that you do, and it's so much fun. And so if you're looking to improve your sales pages, to making better deals with partners, to potentially selling your business one day, to trying to come up with a contract with a consultant, this is for you. So really, this is for everybody. So let's start the show, here we go. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now, so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, a recent dream of his is to interview Michael J. Fox and talk about the past and future together. Pat Flynn. What's up, everybody? Pat Flynn here, and welcome to session 471 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. And like I said, today we're talking with Kalar from greatspeech.co. He's, in fact, a barrister. Or if you don't know what that is, it's like a lawyer, basically. And this is in England, and you'll hear his amazing English voice in just a second. But very thankful that we were able to feature him on the blog. We'll link to that feature in the show notes, of course. And you'll get to know him even more here today. So let's not wait anymore. If you want to better your communication and learn how to get better results in your business, here he is. Caller, welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pat, man, it's an honor, honestly. I really didn't expect this. I had you on my podcast, which was so fantastic. So to get a return invite is brilliant, man. Thank you. Well, it will be valuable for everybody listening. And this is exactly why I wanted to bring you on because you help us take this knowledge that we have and the, the ability to help people you help people package it in a way that allows people to understand that that's true. And, and you, we had just been talking right before hitting record and you would phrase it like this. This is for those of you who know you are great at something, who know that you can help somebody, but sometimes you see others who maybe can't do it as, as great as you who get better results because they're better communicators and you help all of us become better communicators, being able to use words and communicate in a way that gets people to understand us. And that's so important in sales and marketing relationships and really all aspects of life. And I'd love to dig in and learn about how you became so interested in this, that this became your life. What was Caller doing that led to this point to just master this? That's interesting, actually. So I've always been argumentative. <laughs> I think as a kid, I just was, you know, I would debate with my parents, right, and defend my brothers and things. And then that led to eventually studying law and becoming a lawyer or a barrister here in the UK, an attorney which is really just spending your time trying to persuade the judge on your client's behalf, trying to persuade clients to see things your way, trying to negotiate with your opponent, just every aspect and a lot of writing as well. So every aspect of it is just communication focused. So that just gives you day in, day out, trial and error experience of what is it that moves people, that influences people, 
that changes people's minds or at least pushes them in the direction you need them to go to achieve what you want. And so it's kind of my passion became my profession. And then from there, that led in kind of roundabout way to coaching other people in communication generally. So it's just, I don't know, it's just always been me. That's really cool. And and I, I'm curious in your career as an, an attorney, at what point did you really like find yourself? I know like with anything, anytime we're trying to communicate, whether on a podcast or as an attorney or in whatever job, it can take time. I'd love to know how long it took you to sort of find your voice, if you will. And, and how did you know you found your voice? Yeah. So there was there was a specific moment when I figured out that what I was doing beforehand was wrong. So I'll talk, well, I'll tell you about that first of all. So it was, I was against uh, well, what's, it's a QC, which is kind of the highest level barrister in the UK. I was quite early on in my career. And at bar school, they teach you to be very formal, very austere in the way that you communicate, you know, yes, my Lord. And, you know, it's very kind of, you know, baritone, that kind of thing, but very stiff. Right. And so that's what I was doing because that's how I'd been taught. It didn't feel natural, but that's the way I was doing it. And then I came up against a QC who when we met, I expected him to be a bit standoffish and very serious. And he was a really chatty, conversational guy. Thought, oh, that's nice. You know, I thought he'd be, you know, not that nice, but he was. And then he went into court and the case began and he just carried on chatting to the judge, but instead of me to the judge, right? But in a very conversational way, I was like, okay, but when are you going to start, man? You know, <laughs> we're in here. When are you going to begin? And he just carried on and carried on. And then as I paid attention I realized that he was taking all of my best arguments and just turning them against me. But in a very conversational, very easygoing way, the judge, there were three judges in this panel, they were interacting and debating and discussing. And then he finished and kind of like looked at me and like, yeah, over to you, kid. <laughs> and, you know, I had, I knew already that I'd lost. It was, I mean, it was a really tough case. So I'd kind of won my client, but still I could tell that, you know, he had just got them hooked. I did my thing, very formal, very stiff, very austere, and I lost. But that experience, I literally almost overnight just decided, right, that is it. That is how I want to communicate. I want to be conversational. I want to connect with who I'm speaking with, first and foremost. And then my arguments and all that will kind of work within that sphere. So that was kind of a, a real specific moment that I remember changing things. But then it then took me about 10 years before I really felt... I've found that style that is absolutely naturally me. So yeah, it was a journey, man. <laughs> 10 years. What was encapsulated within those 10 years to help you find your style? Yeah. So the advantage of being embarrassed, as I say, is it's literally trial and error. So you're just in court every day or every week and you're doing things, you're giving speeches, you're just trying different things. And it's a very versatile profession in that way. You having to cross-examine people. And I remember just knowing that, okay, I've got to be conversational. I know that works for me, but how can I do it? And it's just, I think there was a particular case where I kind of destroyed some, and it's a terrible thing to say, right? But I destroyed some witnesses in the witness box. That's, you know, terrible as a man. And you just have to say that. But I remember feeling that's it. That's, I found the way I did it, not by being aggressive verbally, but kind of intellectually aggressive. And I really shaped the whole case well, and it worked exactly as I predicted. And so I, re I think it, it just took that long to settle into it, really, which is also why when I coach people, I always kind of tell them, this is a work in progress. It's a journey. You know, celebrate the journey, the moving forward part. Don't just celebrate when you eventually get there, because it will take time. What kind of people do you coach typically? 
Yeah, so I'm typically coaching, as you know, kind of said at the beginning, it's usually people who are at the level where their ability has taken them as far as ability can take you, which is people know you're good, you know you're good, but there's a level above that and beyond that that is where the communicators play. And typically my clients are the ones that come and realize that, yeah, I want to get there. I want to be a leader. I want to be a CEO or as an entrepreneur, I want to kind of really push into the space where I'm called to speak and events and things like that and build my business profile that way. So that's typically the kind of the people that I work with. And what is communication like for those people who you start to work with as far as their baseline and, and what you're working with? Like, what are some struggles they might be having or mistakes that they might be making that you as the expert can kind of see right away? Yeah. So obviously one of the big ones, because when people think communication, they often gravitate to public speaking as a, that's the only element of communication. And so there's public speaking fear, which is one that really afflicts a lot of people kind of at different levels. So with things like that, I tell people, so I use an analogy with, I think it was in Oprah Winfrey in about her 19th season, I think it was, did the episode where she gave away a car to every member of her audience. And she's, it's the one where she goes, and you get a car and you get a car. And you, it's kind of one of the most, you know, famous Oprah episodes. Uh, so I asked my clients who are really nervous about public speaking or communication generally. Say, okay, put yourself in Oprah's shoes at the moment, just before you go out on stage. And you know, you're about to give a car away to every member of your audience. Mm. How do you feel in that moment? Right. Let me ask you, Pat, how would you feel if you knew you were about to give a car away to every member of your audience? Oh, I'd, I'd be so excitedly nervous because I'm about to drop a bomb on these guys in such a good, like, we're going to change lives here. Like, this is going to make people so, so happy. Yeah. You'd be thinking about how am I going to reveal it? You know, whose lives am I going to change in the audience? You know, that kind of thing. You wouldn't be thinking about what am I going to do with my hands and all oh, my voice is shaky? All of that stuff just wouldn't occur to you, not because you don't have that nervousness, but because it's focused and channeled on what you're going to deliver to your audience. So people always give me that answer. So all I say to them is this, substitute the car, because we can't all give a car away like Oprah, right? But substitute the car for the value you are going to give to your audience. If you can create a moment or a speech or whatever it is of just outstanding, incomparable value for your audience, you will go into that speech with confidence, with nervous excitement, thinking about your audience as opposed to focusing on yourself. So when you, when I had you on my podcast, I remember I was talking to you about the speeches. I love, I watched so many of your YouTube speeches when I, I had to find some of them. And you really kind of, it was just clear that you thought a lot about how am I going to help my audience? And I know you were saying nervous, but it, it just, you could see that it's, okay, I know I'm about to deliver something great. So you kind of did it. So yeah, that's just the approach I deal for that specific kind of challenge. Dude, that's so good. Oh my God, that's so good, dude. Oh my gosh, that's so great. What a, what a great way to frame it. When it comes to communication, obviously, it's not just getting on stage in front of a lot of people. Mm. Some of the most important conversations and communication one might have is one-to-one -one with somebody you might be selling to or a kid who you're trying to teach a lesson to or an executive who you get five minutes in a room with. What do you recommend we approach those situations with? Yeah, so I always kind of teach my clients and kind of get them to understand that there's really three levels of communication. 
So level one is kind of the basic level where you're just imparting information, right? So you say it, somebody understands it, they've got it. That's also the level where people think about logic. So, you know, they think, you know, when you're giving, doing any kind of thing, you're trying to persuade people, you say, okay, if I give them rational reasons, they're going to buy into it, right? But typically what people find is that half people will, half people won't. So after a while, you'll probably start to hear about, oh, I know you've got to use emotion. So people kind of realize that, yeah, actually, it's really not just about information, but about persuasion. And then they think about using emotion because they heard, you know, emotion is very important to persuading. And that's very true. So that's kind of level two of communication. And that's actually, to be honest, where most people tap out because they think in terms of, okay, right, I'll use some logic, maybe throw some emotion in there. And they'll generally be pretty persuasive with that. Sure. Tell a story to put put exactly. that emotion in there. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But there's a third level, which is kind of the highest level, which is when you establish a connection with whoever you're communicating with. Because once you establish that connection, everything just flows. They're just with you. Then they're not thinking about, am I being persuaded or not? But it's, hey, you know, let's think about other things or how can we do this? You know, I always talk about Steve Jobs' reality distortion field, as he called it, which is when people were in his presence, they just felt so connected to him that they bought whatever he was saying. Or as we can see that's going on right now, right? You know, uh, President Trump, he, he, for his base at least, has established such a connection with them that he can say pretty much anything and they will buy it. Or people had that with President Obama. So I'd really try and get my clients to focus on communication that establishes a connection with whoever they're communicating with, whether it's one-on-one or, or an audience. And that way, you'll kind of be able to communicate and persuade and all those things much, much stronger. Mm-hmm. Storytelling so- is also a good part of that as well. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. So in, in a one-on-one conversation where I might be trying to pitch a business or sell somebody on something, is it is is connection just a matter of like, hey, my favorite color is red too. I see you're wearing a red tie, right? Like I think this 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 is so important. I know it is. Mm-hmm. But it, we want to take the okay, okay, so then if this then that approach. If tie is red, I will compliment and then we are connected. But that, I know that's not true. Can you can you go a little bit further and deeper into well, how do we make these connections? Yeah, of course. So even at that level, right, there is something to say to that. So for instance, I'm a I'm a West Ham supporter. That's West Ham Football Club here in the, right. in the UK. And I put that in my profile, I think on my LinkedIn. Anybody who sees that who's into football, that's one of the first things they'll say to me. Because it somehow it's just there's if they feel a connection and then therefore the conversation kind of starts to go from that. So even the little part of, hey, you know, some sort of connection that can really work to open things up. But in terms of really trying to establish that connection, especially in a one-on-one, things like that, I always emphasize is is deep, empathetic listening, right? Is where you really... Empathetic, sorry. Empathetic, okay. Empathetic, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Just deep, empathetic listening, where what you're doing is kind of tuning everything else out and giving people the benefit of your complete attention. And you're listening not just for what they say, but the emotion behind what they're saying, and then reflecting that and trying to tap into that. And when people feel that, oh, yeah, this person's really hearing me, they feel connected. And then like, if you're an entrepreneur, it's, it's, and in fact, I was saying with what you were doing, right, how we kind of got into contact, which is you just put out, uh, I want to hear people, I want to listen. 
And that's the first time I remember that I had ever got in contact with you guys because I felt that Pat's really trying to listen here. So that's kind of a, a simple example. And when people feel that you are actually giving them the benefit of your attention, they feel connected to you. And then they feel, oh, this person really gets me. And then the conversation becomes much more interactive, much more engaged, much easier, especially as an entrepreneur. I feel like you're giving me relationship advice as well at the same time. <laughs> no, you see, I can't vouch for that because I try, <laughs> you know, all these things, once it's me and my wife, I literally go out the window, right? <laughs> oh, I, don't, I don't take any of my own advice. <laughs> How do you define the difference between persuasion and connection and manipulation? Yeah, it's 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 a very good point. And the truth is, I think the difference is actually primarily your motive rather than the techniques, because you can use this same technique for good or evil, right? You know, you can use it to manipulate you. So like Robert Cialdini's done, obviously he's done all his persuasion stuff, but he's got a whole thing on persuasion where effectively you set the scene so that the scene itself is a place where it's just conducive to whatever it is you're trying to persuade people on. You know, things like you put, you know, inspiring words on your wall and people see that subliminally, they get more positive or whatever it is. So that can be used for pure manipulation, but it can also be used for just persuasion, not without any ill gain. So I think it's primarily your motive as to what you choose to use it for. Pretty much like any skill, right? You can use it for good or ill. Yeah. With, and, and with great power comes great responsibility. Exactly. Exactly. Communication is a powerful thing for sure. And it's what makes us humans different than any other species, really, when we think about it. Let's say we're in the middle of a conversation. We may be pitching an idea or working with a team member, perhaps, and things aren't aligning between the two parties. People are becoming argumentative. They might be putting up defenses. We start to see a lot of emotion coming into play. How does one in that sort of environment still come across and, 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 and share our ideas? Or do you have any recommendations? And you as somebody who has been in front of judges where arguing is part of the process, like how, how might one within the business environment with a team member or, or another person, a partner, how, how does one communicate in that environment? Yeah, I mean, so again, with the theme of connection kind of rather than adversarial thing, it's what you're trying to do is to get everyone to, in a way, put the problem outside of themselves, right? So one of the difficulties with communication is when the problem is between you. And so you're kind of saying, no, it's this way. They're saying, no, it's that way. And there's kind of an impasse. Whereas when you put take the problem and kind of put it outside of yourself and then both come to the same side to look at the problem and say, how do we solve the problem? Mm -hmm. then you start to see differences. So for instance, I mean, I always tell people when, you know, if, they, if you're negotiating, for instance, don't ask the other person, well, why do you say that? Because they will always have a reason and a justification. It doesn't have to be a good one or not, but in their minds, they'll always be able to justify it. But if you focus instead on saying things like, okay, well, so how are we going to solve this? Just the difference between not why are you taking that point of view, but how are we going to solve this mm. puts them into the mind frame of, okay, well, if we're going to solve this, we'll have to do this. And it's kind of saying, I'm going to take the problem and put it over there and let both of us look at the problem in a way apart from ourselves. 
So I, th- I think the main thing when you're getting to that slight impasse and whatever is really do what you can to get everybody focusing on that the problem is separate from the people. And then that way people start to kind of, you know, use their, use their minds to, to approach it. And it almost makes it, it gives you license to suggest things that you wouldn't because everybody's accepted that the problem is separate to the individuals involved. That's beautiful. How, how do we solve this together? Right? Like we're, we're on yep. the same team here. Like let's, exactly. let's, let's, let's figure it out. And, and we're on this, we're on the same team. Thank you for that. You know, communication in person is one thing. Communication online, where communication is often one way, or it might be even through something like an email. Do you have any suggestions on how to, number one, communicate, which I think we all know how to do on these platforms, but also persuade and connect on these online platforms? Do you have favorite social platforms or or favorite strategies to have the same kind of momentum that you might have in a one-to-one conversation or one-on-to-many on a stage presence, but on this thing where we're all hiding behind our keyboards and devices? Yeah, that's a difficult one. And it's actually one that I've, I don't think even personally that I've totally settled on what I think works best. So there are a few things, I mean, simple things like if you're doing Zoom calls and things, you know, it's little techniques like look at the camera when you speak, which feels artificial because actually at the moment I'm looking at my screen. I've I've been doing that all the way through this. So I'm not, (laughs) I mean, I'm not taking my own advice, but you know, if you're in a in a Zoom call, you know, look up at the actual camera where you won't be able to see what's going on because the screen is down a bit. But that will make the person feel that they're connected to you because you're you're actually making eye contact or eye connection, which is what I really like to call it. So things like that, I think, make a difference. In terms of the online space, what I've kind of found is that you've got to really lean into your personality even more. So if I give a good example, my LinkedIn profile used to be very kind of identikit, right? It was, you know, I'm this, I'm that, I do this, you know, which because I'd seen that's what pretty much everyone else did. And that's how I had it easing it for, even for my coaching work, not just my barrister work. And then I actually decided to just switch it. And my LinkedIn statement now is very much, this is how I coach. This is who I am. I kind of say to people, don't go to a coach if you're looking for a mild 5% improvement. You don't need a coach for that. Go and read a book, right? Only come to me if you want to change things. If you've reached a point where you can't get any further and you need to transform things, I will be hard on you. I will go deep. You'll say things to me you won't say to other people. And you've got to be comfortable with that. And that's how I coach. Basically, don't come to me if you're not ready for that. And I really thought long and hard before I did that because I was like, oh, that's a bit out there. But I, I felt that... That was being true to myself. So I thought, right, do that. And just night and day in terms of the impact, people come to me saying, I, you know, I asked them, well, why did you come to me? So, well, I saw that statement and I felt that's exactly what I needed. So in a way, I think the online world, because at the same time we're connected and disconnected, lean into your personality and your character just even more. Just be yourself, you know, plus one, great, whatever it is. So people feel that connection. That's fantastic. And I think on top of that, because we're not communicating in person, we actually do have available a lot of other tools that can help enhance the messages and the feeling and the emotion and the call to action. For example, the idea that on a video, it's not just you and the person watching, it's the B-roll, the music, 
Absolutely. The words on the screen, there's so many other tools. So it's not a disadvantage. It can be an advantage, but all across the way, it's still about what it is that the message is and how it can affect a person's life. And, and, and so thank you for that. And speaking of affecting people's lives, I know you've affected the lives of many of your clients. I'd love to, if you wouldn't mind sharing a few examples, you don't have to mention any names, but I'd love to learn of, about some of the transformations that you've been able to offer others and sort of like what was life like before for a particular person and, and like what is now opened up for them as a result of, you know, purely focusing on their communication skills. Yeah, well, I, I actually just kind of finished off a group coaching program or like a cohort of a group coaching program. And I actually asked them that exact question. I said, okay. you know, don't tell me just that you enjoyed it. What impact has it had in the real world? And what's lovely about it? And it's, I mean, it's, it's just one of those things where there's nothing like doing work that actually has a positive impact. That's one of the reasons why being a lawyer can be tough because you don't always feel that, you know, you're, I mean, a lot of times you are, but not always. So what's lovely is that, you know, I was talking about, I deal with people who are at the cusp or at least the limit of their ability, where their ability can take them and need to get to the next level in terms of communication. And so I've just had their feedback and it's just to a person they're saying, this has changed everything. In fact, one lady who's actually in the, in the US was saying, what's great is my managers came to me and said, there's something different about you. What is it? And so she hadn't told them she was on the program or anything like that. And they had come and said, there's something different. And she said, yeah, I'm just so much more confident. I'm articulating what I want to say. I'm saying it and believing in it. One of the things I do with my clients is they get set weekly what I call video tasks where I will send them kind of a scenario that they just have to talk back to me for about, it's about one or two minutes. And then I'll critique that, you know, give them feedback on it. And just the act of every week having to talk and speak, and they only get, they can prepare as long as they want, but they only get one take. And just the fact of having to do that has meant they've just got more and more comfortable with just getting up and speaking. And at the start, they'd all be doing, uh, okay, I'm not sure I should do here, but okay, right, uh, let me give it a go. Okay, so, and then and then I will say, I don't want any of that. Take all of that stuff out and just start where you started, you know, 35 seconds in, <laughs> right? And just that means that they've gotten so much more confident. And so when they're in the real world, they're able to articulate without prevarication. They're standing their ground or saying what they want to say. And then we do a lot of specific techniques of how to be persuasive when you're not naturally a persuasive person and, you know, all of this kind of stuff, which has just given them a lot of tools. But mainly it's, I think, the belief that they, they now have. And that's, to be honest, it's, it's inspiring to, to kind of hear that feedback. That's amazing. And it almost feels like you're providing that environment that you had when you learned to find your voice, which was just the constant reps day in, day out. And as a coach, you're just offering the same kind of space because these people probably aren't lawyers or are going through the same opportunities that you had. So that that's fantastic. Can you tell everybody where to go and find you and perhaps the name of the program or, or whatever else you might have to offer so they can find you? Yeah, thanks, Pat. So Probably the easiest way is for people to just take the podcast player they're using right now and search for The Great Speech Podcast. 
and they will find my podcast with lots of episodes on basically everything devoted to communication skills. So I cover topics like how to build your charisma, how to use storytelling as part of your communication, how to develop the sound of your voice. Uh, I interview other experts on things like body language and stuff like that. I do a, a series focused on speeches by women, which is really, really underrepresented in terms of appreciation of great speeches by women. And I also do an analysis of great speeches in history, done one on the Tilbury speech by Queen Elizabeth I, the I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King Jr. So that's probably the best way to find me. On top of that, of course, I'm on, on social media. LinkedIn is my preferred network. So if you reach out to me there and connect with me with my name, I'll certainly connect with you there. I do LinkedIn live shows as well every week. So that's kind of a good one as well. And obviously, you can go to my website, greatspeech.co.co, especially for those that are actually looking for communication skills, help or coaching. That's really my passion. So reach out to me there and I do kind of a free session that helps with people to kind of identify what their communication skills challenges are. And then I can tell them whether I can help them or not. So yeah, that's probably the best way. Thank you. One of my favorite movies as of late that I'm sure you're familiar with, The King's Speech so good and and every actor every moment like i literally as a communicator myself can can relate to a lot of of what he was struggling with and so mm. anyway i'm just i'm just reminded of that um, but before we finish up i want to ask you one more question and that, and that is you know across your career as you've become a better and more proficient communicator what what is the number one piece of advice that you could offer your younger self somebody who was perhaps not at that 10 year mark yet still trying to find your voice what would you tell yourself now with where you're at and what you've learned it's okay to be you, basically. As I said, I spent the first half kind of trying to be what I was told you should be if you're embarrassed in that instance, but just generally. And it took me a while, as I say, that particular instance, but then really trying to just be free and confident enough to be myself. And the more I was that, the more my clients loved it, the more persuasive I was in court, the more I was able to, you know, give speeches and things like that that people actually listening to and connecting with. So be yourself just more. Right? That's, uh, that's I think, the, the biggest thing that I have learned in this journey. That's beautiful. Thank you, Karel. Appreciate you so, so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us and your stories and just so much great advice. Like this is going to be one for the ages for sure. And I'm really excited to continue to share this with people who are both starting and already advanced with communication because it's something we could always improve upon and I think you're the guy for the job. So thank you. Appreciate you thank coming you. on. And uh, Pat, uh, listen, I, I know you could try to wrap up. I just want to say, man, thank you, because I, I would not be podcasting if it wasn't for you. And in terms of my personal entrepreneurial journey, it would definitely be a whole lot longer <laughs> if it wasn't for you, because I've consumed everything you've done and you're, you're, you're brilliant. So thank you. Thank you, my friend. Well, it's my it's my absolute pleasure to have you here. And I'm so stoked to hear everybody's reaction to this episode. And I look forward for us to connect again soon in the future. Absolutely. See, wasn't that an epic interview? 
that was just so much fun. And caller, thank you so much for your time today and especially the kind words you mentioned at the end there on how much you've progressed as a result of listening to this show. And I just absolutely love featuring members of the SPI audience who have gone on to do amazing things who then can come back and provide even more value to the people here. So let's let's all give caller a big thank you and shout out and that's just amazing. So if you want to check him out, greatspeech.co. If you want to learn more, you could either potentially hire him or at least learn from him for free on his blog and with his articles. And again, that's greatspeech.co. And of course, we'll link to all these great places on the show notes page, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 471. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash session 471. And hopefully this has helped you improve your communication. The other thing that's helped me improve communication is just going out there and communicating the podcast and being consistent with it, right? The blog and writing with it, getting up on videos and publishing them on YouTube. That has all helped me. That combined with everything we learned here today, man, it's gonna do awesome. So thank you again so much. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already so you can get the upcoming Friday follow-up episode coming where we go a little bit deeper into communication. I'll tell you some stories about different ways that I've done it well and then I haven't done it so well. And we'll talk more about that on Friday in our follow-up Friday episodes. Thank you for all the great comments and suggestions about that. And we have another episode coming out next week too. So thank you so much. I appreciate you. This has been great and take care. We'll see you soon. Peace out and Team Flynn for the win. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Sound design and editing by Paul Gregoris. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski, and our executive producer is Matt Gartland. The Smart Passive Income Podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. So podcasting is obviously a big deal here at SPI, and today I'm so excited to tell you about our newest podcast. Yes, a brand new podcast called Flops. Flops is all about exploring, celebrating, and normalizing failure in the entrepreneurial journey. Every entrepreneur experiences failure at some point, so I love that we're just facing it head on here. And the show is hosted by two members of the team, Karen and Ray, and in it, they talk to entrepreneurs who have had stumbles, setbacks, and flat-out failures. These guests are honest and generous with their stories, and I think they offer hope and encouragement for all other entrepreneurs out there because we all experience it, right? We all experience failure. For example, in the first episode, Ray talks to John who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. It's a story with twists and turns that will keep you hooked. It's a great story. I highly recommend you check it out. But one thing I love about Flops is that it doesn't dwell on the failure and it always finds a bright side. I really love it and I think you will too. So the first season of Flops has already started with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. I hope you enjoy it. This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. It's the Blood Red podcast, courtesy of the Liverpool Echo. I'm Guy Clark. Welcome along. FSG investment, Arsenal assignment, and Bobby is back. Plus, after three weeks away, our team selector and match predictions return ahead of the visit to the Emirates. Here to look ahead to the return to action, we have Ian Doyle and David Lynch. Doyle, I'll come straight to you after... uh, 
a couple of weeks off for yourself and it seems to have been a, a busy last week of the international break. We've had the, the rumours around Ibrahima Kanate, the Salah speculation and finally the uh, the investment into FSG. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give you the answer you don't want, which is I've been off for two weeks. I've not been paying any attention whatsoever to anything <laughs> oh, that's been going on. Doing an ostrich impression, burying your head in the sand. Uh, I wouldn't go that far, but it, it, it wasn't far off, to be honest. Yeah, I managed to nearly get sunburnt on Monday, so that was good going. But uh, no, I, I would imagine for now, you're probably best asking Lynchy to fill in all the blanks in there because I genuinely haven't really been paying him much attention. No, all right. Well, we we are going to sort of uh, st- start with talking about the the investment in FSG and uh, Lynchy. Then I will come to you first up on it, and it seems to be sort of ahead of the summer transfer window and everything around that to be very encouraging times for Liverpool. Yeah, it does. I think obviously Liverpool are sort of keen when they to play down any suggestion that you know this would have a massive effect on the the transfer fees they could pay out or you know any funds that Jurgen Klopp would be given over the summer, and I think that's probably sensible to manage expectations because you immediately start hearing names like Erling Haaland sort of bandied about and, and killing Mbappe. And, and I, I don't think Liverpool are suddenly up alongside Manchester City in terms of how much money they've got to spend this summer because of this. But, um, you know, the message was sent pretty clearly, I thought, in the FSG statement that was attached to them announcing the, the deal going through. Um, saying that basically this will, you know, allow us to continue as business as usual. So it, it plugs any sort of gaps that coronavirus has caused in the in the bottom line, I suppose. And then, you know, Jurgen Klopp really echoed those sentiments today, didn't he? In his press conference, very very much said it, it basically allows us to continue as normal, which is which is a positive thing. So, you know, the manager seems to be on board with that, and and I think continuing as normal for Liverpool is a good thing to to be able to do that after the pandemic, which we don't know yet just how much that has hit them financially because of the, the delay in the publication of the currency. It obviously usually would be out in February. Um, so we don't we don't know how much that's going to hit them. But the fact that this can plug the gap and, and allow them to continue as normal is positive because normal for Liverpool is usually, you know, being very savvy in the transfer market, but getting the right players in and, and, and challenging for trophies under Jurgen Klopp. That's what we've seen. So I think continuing as normal and business as usual, all these phrases that, that's good news to Liverpool fans as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's been a story that our business of football writer Dave Powell has been covering for a little while as well, Doyle. £538 million worth of investment. Jurgen Klopp in his press conference, I think, used the phrase, it gives us some consistency. So I suppose echoing there what, what Dave says, even whether or not sort of looking ahead to the transfer window, Liverpool sort of know what they've got to play with now. Well, yeah, I think I think from what from what Jurgen Klopp said, you can. It, it is kind of a reassurance, isn't it? It's that the fact that Liverpool can just, as he said, can just carry on the way that they have been going in terms of the transfer window. Anybody, as Lynchy said, they expect they're going to sign Haaland. Well, when have they ever looked like they're ever going to do that anyway? So that's, I thought he that's was going to be up. joining us today on the Blood Red Podcast. Isn't you know, Raiola <laughs> taking him out? He, was... he uh, might know no. a bit more about what's going on than Doyle, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, to be fair, that's not too hard. Just asking about the two weeks before that. That would be. That'd be yeah, I'd, I'd know what's going on then. You haven't played any games recently, have you? <laughs> uh, going back to the investment, yeah. Um, well, that's something that's been kind of been knocking around for a while, hasn't it? I mean, there has been the suggestion that FSG were looking to get some fresh, fresh investment into into the company as a whole, rather than just the, the Liverpool as the club. So it's 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 clever from them, but it's something that you look at. I think I'm pretty sure Tottenham. Of Tuk Tuk out a massive loan, didn't they? I think was it Arsenal did as well. I think there's there's a few other clubs that have done it. 
simply to safeguard from the uncertainty that you know the pandemic has has, has prompted because you know let's face it, it's still not over I mean, there's no guarantee that, that we, I know we've got this and certainly in the, in the United Kingdom we've got this you know pathway towards everything getting back open but there's still no guarantee that's going to actually happen and that it's actually going to last for for that long so there's still uncertainty but with with this move which I did read a little bit about to be honest um it's uh, <laughs> the they are cover, not so much covering themselves but they're giving themselves that security outlet that means that they can actually continue on all the interest just carry on the way that they have been doing it rather than having to make decisions that's going to see you know, let's say for example for liverpool that might see well we're going to have to you know, knock the Anfield road you know end expansion on the head which is something they clearly don't want to do something that they see as a long term you know as they've proven that they are very much invested in the club in terms of infrastructure and that's another the next big thing that they've got planned and as from what Jurgen Klopp said in the press conference he's, he's obviously quite happy because it means that he can carry on working under the you know the assumptions that he's been presumably what money he's going to get in the summer and how much he's going to have to spend he he, he knows that he can now crack on and, and he'll know that it's there on that point then and taking it wider and sort of spoiler alert for the second half of the podcast when we talk about the return of the actual football action in terms of top four hopes we've kind of been writing them off now for a few weeks Lynchy but is it a case of looking at this now and talking ahead of the transfer window that regardless of whether Liverpool are in the top four or not as Doyley was saying there actually Jurgen Klopp will be able to sort of plough ahead with whatever plans he sees fit for Liverpool this summer. Yeah, you'd like to think so, wouldn't you? I don't think, um, you know, personally, I think I've said this before on this podcast, I don't think FSG would have had a lot of excuses to not to not push on and really invest in the squad in the summer. And I'm not talking huge amounts again, not talking about bringing in someone like Haaland or anything like that, but just having a very similar summer to last year, really, is plugging the odd gap and being sort of quite clever about it. And, and maybe hope, they'd hope he's moving on a couple as well who, who didn't move on last summer. So they, they, they'd hope they could just have a normal summer like that. And I think I think it just at least gives them the comfort that they can do that now. And, and you know, it's not completely dependent on making sure you get rid of Origi or making sure you move Shakiri on or you, you know, you're doing late loan deals in the way that they were for maybe Marco Gruic and, and Harvey Elliott, a couple of players who, the, the, you know, the last minute, for example, Elliott only gets moved out because they can't sell Shakiri And then obviously Gruic, they're desperately searching for a loan move for him on, on deadline day. So I think, you know, the idea that it's, they're not going to be sort of dependent on doing things like that this time around and that the, the money is there for, for Jurgen Klopp to spend and, and get his players in early in the window because we know that's something he likes to do as well is get them a, a good pre-season. So if the, if the cash is guaranteed and they know that there's some sort of comfort blanket there in the form of this investment, then that, that can only really be a good thing for the uh, the football side of things. And you know, Champions League, like you say, is is very much up in the air. So any sort of degree of certainty you can bring in in sport is, uh, you know, very very appealing to owners. Seems to be really timely as well, Ian. In terms of looking at contracts and even sort of the current squad, it, it only sort of two years left to go on a number of the the big hitters' contracts for twenty twenty three. And now actually having this kind of investment, if it's not going to be spent on massive transfer fees in the summer, actually it is still going to cost Liverpool, isn't it, to renew contracts? Because I'm sure an awful lot of those players will want bumper new contracts. They're not just going to want to be staying on the same terms that they agreed when they initially signed. Well, that's true. But then you look at players like Wan Alden, it's whether or not will this have any impact on what Liverpool offer him? I don't know. You know, Perhaps they've got a way that they see things looking at his age and go, well, we're actually not going over this particular this particular amount. You just threw me then, by the way, by calling me Ian. No one ever calls me Ian. <laughs> um, <laughs> not even my dad. He calls me by my brother's name. 
Um, <laughs> so, so, so yeah, the uh, yeah, I, I, you're right. But I think you can, you've got. To, I think people have to remember that Liverpool did spend. If you look at the actual overall transfer fee, more than sixty million pounds on new players last last summer when they're in the middle of the pandemic. Obviously, with with Jota and Thiago, and I know that. Jota they didn't put very much money up front, but they're gonna have to, gonna have to start getting paid, isn't it? And the money have to get start getting paid if it wasn't already to, to buy Munich for Thiago and, and that the Simicas as well. So I think yeah, Liverpool, this is a this is a good move for them. In terms of the contracts for players, I I'm not sure that there's actually that many players who are up who would have their contract renewed over this this summer anyway. I'm not entirely sure. I think the only way that it would be possibly, and I know you're going to mention a, a certain Egyptian at me at, at some point, is that uh, is whether or not they, they feel as though they need to do that to stop him from going elsewhere. Well, yeah, obviously <clears throat> referring there to, to to Salah, isn't it? Salah, Mane, Fabinho, Allison, are they? all not got these contracts now with similar sort of end dates on that Liverpool are going to have to address. And it, it is, I suppose, David, going to become sort of more and more of a, an elephant in the room. Liverpool back in action against Arsenal and just look at how they've been run as a club for sort of 10 years. Every summer, it seems to be a contract fiasco there. Well, that's it. This is the summer, really, isn't it, where you want to get a lot of those sorted so you don't end up in a similar situation to Arsenal because I think once you go past that two-year mark, it gets really dodgy then, doesn't it, in terms of if a player wants to force their way out, it becomes easier and easier the more you, you get towards that final year. So, um, yeah, I think you know there's been a lot of positive noises coming out about Fabinho and Alisson. I think those are real priorities to get sorted this summer and you get the sense from the players themselves that they would be quite happy to tie themselves down to, to playing under Jurgen Klopp for a few more years. But the Salah one's obviously very interesting, isn't it? They're going to, you know, they're possibly in a position already this summer where, is it, you know, they have to make a decision, really. It, you know, you either either sign him up or try and force him to, to get him, convince him to sign him up um, this summer or, or really start considering selling him. So, you know, it's, it's a tough one. It, it, Again, you know, we know that the way FSG run this club as well, whether you're thinking about Salah's value and his age and, and the fact that this is probably the maximum amount they would be able to get from him in the transfer market. How has that been affected by COVID as well? We don't really know that. So it's, yeah, it's it's a really, really difficult one this summer in terms of the contracts. I think the Allison and Fabinho ones, just with the noise that's coming out of the club, you expect them to get wrapped up pretty easily. But the... Um, yeah, the seller one is is really, really interesting going into this summer. I think the way that plays out will tell you a lot about what this team's going to look like in a few years. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Is this summer, Doyley, going to be the biggest summer since 2018 then maybe for Liverpool in terms of what needs to be done? Not in terms of what maybe we are expecting right now, but in terms of what does need to be done. Is this going to be maybe as big as, as that summer? Well, since 2018... Yeah, since 2018. Well, there's only been two, hasn't there? And one of the seasons they just didn't do anything. So <laughs> by, that, by that definition, then I would imagine it would be. I don't actually think that they need to do that much. I'll be no. perfectly honest. I don't think there's going to be loads. I mean, you can go through it and go. The interesting thing for me about people are saying, like, if they don't get into the Champions League, what, what's that going to mean in terms of attracting players? Well, I actually think the other way around. If they don't get into Europe, there'll be quite a lot of players will go, well, we're never going to play here. Because there's no European football, there's just Premier League and the domestic cups. We'd quite like to go, and, and it's the usual suspects. You look at, you know, Shakiri and Origi, people like that. But then you could even go down to someone like, say, for example, Oxlade Chamberlain or even Cater. You know, they're just people who may ultimately go. Well, I've not played that much for whatever reason over the past two years, and, and I quite fancy something different. If we're not in Europe, how am I going to get me games? So, 
that's how I think possibly European football and the non-qualification for it would, would impact Liverpool. Obviously, there'll be one or two players who, who might go, well, we don't really want to join because we're not in the Champions League. Well, it's like, well, as Klopp himself has said, well, if you don't want to do that, that's fine. We, we don't want you here. And this isn't the Liverpool that the, the Liverpool that didn't get, you know, didn't get into the Champions League in 2016 when they lost the Europa League final. This is Liverpool that won the Premier League last year and got to two Champions League finals is still in the Champions League this year. So we know the reasons why this season has been like it is. So in that respect, I think there will be some new signers, but I don't think there'll be absolutely loads. And there certainly won't be, as we've, you know, we've just said before, there won't be any like Haaland for 120, 130 million. And even if they do, you know, somebody goes for big money, say Salah goes, do you really think they're going to spend all that money on a replacement? I don't think then that leaves the thing of what's better value to them, keeping Salah there for another two years and letting him run his contract down or or, or think about, well, perhaps we can offer him a new, another one further down the line and see what he thinks or or having to spend that money because it would be more difficult to spend it than it would be to get it in. Well, it's, it's an interesting one, Guy, just on that point is that, you know, we talked about the certainty that, that this investment brings and, and the idea that, you know, even if there's a shortfall in financial terms because of a lack of European football that, you know, Liverpool can consider that they're well covered for that. But it, it's the effect it has, I suppose, on the, the composition in the squad, whether they're in Europe or not. You know, do you really need, say, if, if Liverpool go into next season not playing European football, this extra forward that people are talking about them signing to sort of start that succession planning towards maybe Firmino being moved out of that front three or, or maybe you, you move on Salah in a couple of years. Um, you know, can can you really start that if you if you've not got European football? I just don't think there's enough fixtures there to do it. Particularly if you want, say, Harvey Elliott to pick pick up some minutes and and things like that. So it's it's it, that's probably the trickiest situation that Liverpool are going to face going into this summer. And, and, and that's a situation that won't be resolved until the season comes to a close. Is is whether or not they're, they're playing any European football at all, and, and how many fixtures that gives them going into next season? Because I, I think that more than maybe what European competition they're playing in will probably have an effect on who they can and can't sign. But it's one of those as well, I suppose, of it's a case of fine-tuning, isn't it? Look at Diogo Jota, a £45 million signing, who's really had a new lease of life at Liverpool and helped take the forward line in a different direction. Dolly, you're probably who I'm framing this, this at in terms of Liverpool, if they are going to go and spend money in the, the transfer market and bring in, say, two or three players just to enhance the squad, there's nothing really from through the past that you're going to look at and go, well, all of a sudden they are going to go and make a huge investment because it's not like the defence prior to Virgil van Dijk. It isn't screaming out for a world-class investment, is it? Well, that's it. I mean, what, what area of Liverpool's team really needs overhauling? And the answer is none, really. I mean, you might say a centre-back simply because you can't, as we've said before, before numerous times, you can't guarantee that all three of those who are injured at the moment, Van Dijk, Gomez and Matip, are all going to come back as good as new. Which is probably not going to happen. And so that's why we had the stories this week um, about Canarte. Um I think in terms of the forward, that's an interesting point that Lynchy makes because if they're not there, then if they're not playing that many games, then perhaps they don't need to, to, to change as much. Because we've forgotten Minamino as well. They signed in, didn't they, like 15 months ago. And you do wonder whether or not it ends up being that Jot is Minamino's replacement. I do think for probably because he plays in the two positions that that Minamino likes to Minamino likes to play. But again, look at it from the point of view of the player coming in. It's the old Firmino problem that the Liverpool have had for quite a few years. Anybody like that's why Timo Werner possibly 
jumped at the chance of going to Chelsea when he when they came in for him in last summer because he, he knew that he was going to be getting a game there. And you know, well, we can't. No one could have predicted it would end up quite as difficult for him as possible. I think he would have probably done a bit better at Liverpool, but would he? Have, he probably would have played the games as well. That's the thing. Mm. But you, know, you can't predict it. Uh, but then, would Liverpool have signed Jota? No. So that's the thing. So I think Liverpool, yes, as we've said, they will make some changes to the squad. Again, as Lynchy says, how much of that, it, how much change they have to make will come down to where they end up finishing in the Premier League or, or qualifying for the Champions League from, from winning it. Um, but, you know, as, as, as has come out this week, Liverpool have got, you can see Liverpool have got these options, you know, that we talk about the centre-back, but there'll be other positions where they'll have players lined up and then they'll go through and see at the end of the season which ones are, are most likely to come and want to come. Yeah, interesting stuff to keep an eye on. Let's then move on and talk about the return of action then. Of course, tomorrow, Liverpool travelling to Arsenal to get back into to Premier League action. Of course, sitting seventh at the moment, which would be enough to secure European qualification into the Europa League for next season, Lynchy. But nine games to go, five points off Chelsea. Top four hopes still alive or or not? When you look at it and it's five points and you think that Chelsea are probably going to stumble at some point, aren't they? I don't think they'll just keep beating sides in the way that they have been recently. You know, they're not they're not suddenly a side of maybe Manchester City's quality um, just because they've got a new manager and there's still flaws in that side. You know, some of those summer signings still haven't taken, not just Werner, but also Havertz not really having much of an impact. Um, Ziyech is, is, is in and out in terms of his influence. So, you know, they're not a perfect side and I think they could stumble at some point. The thing that Liverpool, the issue for Liverpool is obviously they haven't looked capable this season of just reeling off a six, seven game winning streak, have they? And that, that's the issue you can see with them maybe crawling, creeping into that top four and, and, and the fact that they've got other sides ahead of them as well. You know, West Ham have done well, Tottenham have sort of recovered their form recently. So it's they're just relying on maybe too many things to go in their favour for them to, to sneak into that top four. But, you know, Jürgen Klopp and his players will be seeing it in the way that he sort of spoke about today in his press conferences that, you know, we can only win our next game and sort of and, and keep doing that to the end of the season and, and see where we end up. So I think for Liverpool, you know, the best they can do in the next couple of days is, is beat Arsenal and, and, and see that as a start towards getting top four. So that's it. You've just got to go into these games and, and, and try and win as many as they can, starting with that one at the weekend. What is it, 19 days since the, the Wolves game, I think it is, Dolly, when obviously Liverpool do take on Arsenal. They've had this break then and chance maybe to get on the training ground with the certainly the Brazilian contingent who didn't go away during the international break. And now I suppose it's it's about trying to just do as best as they can in the league as well as maybe using this Arsenal game even as a bit of a, a warm-up for the uh, away game with Real Madrid, the first leg of the uh, quarter-final of the Champions League. I mean, as much as I, I like winding you up about Arsenal, I'd never say go into Arsenal as a warm-up game for anything. To be honest, it's it's. I think Liverpool have, have Liverpool have won only two of the last fourteen games there, and Arsenal have already beaten Liverpool. Well, did they really beat them? It's on penalties. Um, so they've already, they've drawn with them twice. They've, <laughs> they've drawn with them twice. Um, but of course, Arsenal beat Arsenal won at the Emirates last season two one, and it was it was that game, wasn't it? I remember I was there that Liverpool absolutely battered them, went ahead. And then kind of it was two stupid mistakes. Arsenal ended up going ahead and then putting everybody back and, and playing out and getting a 2-1 win. And Arteta after the game said, you know, we're, we're absolutely nowhere near their level. And yet you look at the table this season and they're not that far behind in terms of points because of the way that the season's gone. So I think 
Arsenal drew three all last time, didn't they? With West Ham, didn't yeah, they? Yeah. West Ham, I think, yeah. I think yeah, it's only Ar- a four point gap as well. So, I, well, you know, I was going to say, I was going to say, if they'd have won that, I think Arsenal would have quite fancied the chances of like finishing ahead of Liverpool. I think it's possibly a little bit too much for them now. But you know, Liverpool have got that big Champions League game coming up on Tuesday in uh, in Madrid against Real Madrid. So, I'd expect there to be some changes, but. I think Liverpool. I think Liverpool have to win seven of the last nine games to have any chance of finishing the top four. And bearing in mind, how many games did they won this season? About something like thirteen, is it? Something like that. It's not. It's not loads, is it? In terms of the Premier League, certainly compared to the last couple of years. So, it's a big ask. But as Lynchy said, as, as as Jurgen Klopp said, he's obviously been listening to what Lynchy says. As said, he's going to do <laughs> do, do, uh, do one game one game at a time, and it, it's it's a little bit like. Dono, thinking of the last time I can remember Liverpool just having to take one game at a time, like this was probably 2001 where they had like tons and tons of games. And it was like you just couldn't see past the next game. It's been a little bit different the last couple of years because they've known that the team have been capable of winning these games. But now they literally just have to go literally one game at a time and go, right, let's deal with this one. Okay, Lana, let's go on to the next one, which sounds obvious. But that's the only way they're going to have any chance of doing anything between now and the end of the season. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? When you you kind of point you made before, Lynch, about Chelsea, they've been unbeaten so far under Tuchel, but you just wonder, I suppose, and that is that is the thing for Liverpool, isn't it? Just keep the pressure up, and if they have a wobble, just see if you can you can then take advantage. Yeah, I think Chelsea's issue that that might sort of come back to bite them at some point is the fact that they attacking wise just haven't convinced really under under Tuchel yet. I think you know defensively really sorted them out. They're quite a difficult side to play against, but. You know, if those goals dry up and they, they've come close to, to sort of suffering from that in a few games, if those goals really do dry up and they, you know, then results can slightly turn and if they get on a bit of a bad run, it's, you know, it becomes difficult again for them. So they, they, they're not completely out of sight. And I think, you know, like we said, Liverpool can only just keep that pressure on them and, and sort of keep as close as possible and then, you know, just see what happens to Chelsea every weekend. And I, I think there is scope for, for it to to be quite close, you know, whether Liverpool are the ones who take advantage of that, you know, we'll have to see. But yeah, I think it's going to be a really interesting running for that top four race. I think it's, um, you know, it might just, might be beyond Liverpool maybe, but some of the other sides will really, really think that they've got a chance. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. It's the big selection question. I know we'll, we'll get onto our team selector and things at the end, Doily, but is the, the big sort of selection decision in this game Firmino or Jota? He's been playing in that central role, hasn't he, Jota? He scored at Wolves an eternity ago before this break for Liverpool. But Roberto Firmino's got a brilliant record against Arsenal and away from home as well. He sort of seems to fancy it more. I think it's a selection decision I don't think it's the big one I think there's bigger ones like who, who on earth is going to play in midfield they've got we've, we've mentioned a few times on the podcast recently the suddenly real so the sudden realization is that Liverpool have now got millions of midfielders they've got loads of them uh you know even that's even without Henderson playing and with Fabinho back in central midfield so that's the thing because they got so used to over the course of this season that being without at least one of those two, possibly both of them for, for, for large stretches of time, is that they built these different combinations playing in midfield. And I think whoever plays in midfield for the remainder of the season, it's, it may even just change game to game. It's always been like that with under Jurgen Klopp. It's always been that's the position where he's gone kind of horses for courses. He's like the front three. He likes a settled defence. You know, he obviously tries to stick with the same goalkeeper, but. I think the midfield will be the decision, and I think that's going to be the decision for the for the remainder of the season, depending on on, on the way that the season's going. Is this going to be one of those 
games then, and I suppose actually as, as the season goes on, we'll, we'll probably be saying it ahead of Real Madrid that Liverpool will really miss someone like Jordan Henderson, Lynchy in that midfield, the leader, the guy who barks out the orders and really does get the team revving. Because as much as I suppose we look at the break and say, well, that will have done Liverpool some good to have finally had a bit of, whether it be a mental break or whether it be a physical break, to then go again. Quite often they, they do take a little bit of time to warm up, but with no Henderson in the team, it feels as though that could be a big miss. Yeah, I mean, it's not entirely certain, is it, that if he was back for any of these games that he would even be in, in that central midfield because of the number of options they've got there and they're still obviously struggling at the back and. And you still get the sense that you know Jurgen Klopp would quite like to get Nat Phillips out of there, even though he's done quite well for me recently. It's he just seems to not want to. You know, well, every, every chance he's had this season to not play him, he's, he's taken it. So I think. Do you reckon, do you reckon part of, do you reckon part of that's due to the fact that he knows he's probably not. He doesn't want him to. Not doesn't want him, but he's planning for life without him next season. Because let's face it, he could. He he, he basically left in October, didn't he? Or he more or less left. Yeah, there was, there was, uh, I saw there was interesting quotes from Theo's exclusive, Theo Squire's exclusive with him that was from, was it from last year about basically yeah. Philip saying that, that the manager basically told me he didn't fancy me at all um, and I had no chance of playing under him. And so, you know, you've got to view every sort of minute he's got since that conversation he had through that prism, really, of the idea that, you know, the, the manager really, really doesn't want to play him if he can get away with it. And I, you know, he's pleased for him in the way that we all are, and I think he's done fantastically well. But I think if Henderson was back, I think he would be, obviously, in, in central in central defence. So I think it's, you know, as much as maybe you say about his, his leadership skills in midfield, I think it, he would be that presence still at the back, wouldn't he? And it is that ability to go again and, and find moments in games where you're finding things tough to, to really find that extra press in your legs and things like that. That's where they miss Henderson. And I think, like you say, a big week like this where you've got Arsenal and then and then Real Madrid straight off the back of it, so you know, sorely missing those leadership skills, aren't you, in, in games like that? He always sort of puts in a big performance as well, no matter where he is on the pitch. So... Yeah, it's, it's a shame not to have him, but you know Liverpool are just going to have to get used to that, aren't they? Because you know, by the sounds of things from Jurgen Klopp's point of view, it's you know Henderson doesn't sound like he's going to be back anytime soon. So as much as they miss him, they're going to have to cope without him. And, and, and you know, you, you hope that they can produce enough good enough good enough performances between now and the end of the season in these big games to to make it a successful finish. Yeah, on Phillips as well. He, he he seems to be endearing himself to Jurgen Klopp week after week. Of course, he's won the club's Player of the Month award for for March. And do you think, Doyle, that Jurgen Klopp sees a bit of himself in that Phillips almost? In terms of his I don't, playing I don't, career, I don't know. Is this your answer? There, I don't know. No, I just think he, he always speaks so affectionately in terms of about him. Like he, he was asked about obviously him being the, the Player of the Month today, and he he just sort of had a big grin on his face, and he's so pleased for him, but. As Lynchy says, he, he probably doesn't really feel at this level. He's probably got the uh, the wherewithal to actually stay around and be a player for Liverpool for years and years to come. Even even when he did well in the second leg against Leipzig, I think Klopp's quote was something like, "He'll now he'll always be able to say he played for Liverpool in yeah. the Champions League." It's like, hang on, they've just yeah, got yeah. through. He's got through. I think he'll be playing in the next game. So you know, I. I it's hardly a surprise, really, is it? Let's be honest. There was no Premier League clubs who were coming in for Phillips last season, worthy last year, I should say. And even if he doesn't play another game, well, I mean, I, he's going to be playing on Saturday. And he's, I mean, he's, he's playing against Real Madrid. Well, I've said this. I've said yeah. this. Yeah, I've said this. So, but even if he doesn't play another game for Liverpool from this moment on, his stock has gone so high that there'll be loads of clubs coming in for him. And I also think that 
One thing that he offers Liverpool's defence that since Van Dijk's been injured is that kind of aerial prowess. You know, he's, he's, he's very good in the air and, you know, whether we like it or not, an awful lot of certainly the attacking plays is played up in the air and you need people who can head it. Certainly it's set pieces, you know, corners, that kind of thing. And he's a defender, isn't he? As opposed to somebody who can, you know, come out and, and play the ball and do this, that, and the other. That's, put, that's quite clearly his weakness. And, you know, Klopp said that when he played against... Was it West Ham for his Premier League debut back in October? I think it was. He said he knows his limitations. And if you've got a player who doesn't try anything that he knows he can't do, but he's very good at the things that he does do, and they happen to be things that the team actually needs right then, then why on earth wouldn't you play him? It's you know The reason Klopp likes him so much at the moment is probably twofold. One, he seems like a nice a nice bloke. And the second thing is that he's, they're actually winning games and keeping clean sheets with him playing. And you know along with Kabak, they formed that kind of partnership, haven't they? I mean, who knew having two actual centre backs playing at centre back and suddenly they've, what is it, four? They've only conceded one goal in four games and that was a penalty, wasn't it, against Everton? So I think they'll be they'll be given a bit of a tough test um, the next couple of games, whether it's Obama, Yang, Lacazette or, or, or Benzema. It's going to be something completely different to what they've, they've had already. So, I mean, that, that sense we'll learn a bit more about them, but I don't think it's going to make any difference for, for Nat Phillips. Do you think? Do you think he's going to be tempted to to? Sorry, Sky. I'm just I'm just taking over. No, it's, here, that's it's okay, fine, yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, I, I, I'm interested to see what you guys think about this. Do you think he'd be tempted for for any of the games if you know if this Champions League run continues or any of the games against Real Madrid? Would he be tempted to put Fabinho back in at centre half because he's got these options now in central midfield that we spoke about? And I, and I know it's worked so well putting him back in there, but just as a manager, do you think he'll just think? Just having that quality at centre half would be nice. You know, it's it's interesting. I think not. Oh, guy, you just went then. I think that was Kai kind of flying around thinking, yeah, he's not needed now. We'll get rid of him. Um, yeah, I, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. You just you've just seen in the few games that Fabinho's played. Fabinho's played in centre midfield. The difference he makes, not only in terms of the actual midfield and helping. You saw how good Thiago was against Leipzig. So when mm. Alderman uh, did did better, but he offers greater protection to the centre backs. So ideally, you'd want Fabinho in front of Fabinho if you're going to do that. But he can't be <laughs> two players in one, can he? So you know, stick with the centre backs. You know how to defend. And just get the ball to the midfielders because obviously they're all ball player midfielders. They all know what they can do. Or get it out wide to the fullbacks. That's why they're there. Let them do their thing. Just get the defenders to defend. And that's why Liverpool, I think, will stick with those two. And you know, bar an injury or something strange happens in the league where they can't get anywhere near it and they've got through in the Champions League. I think they'll they'll stick with those two for the rest of the season. Kabak and Phillips, that is. What what do you think in terms of this game then, Lynch, in terms of how it might play out and there's been this obviously feeling recently with Liverpool playing a few of the, the bottom sides in the division that they've come in, sat deep and Liverpool have struggled to break them down. But if they play a side who might try and open up, which Arsenal certainly at the Emirates have been doing a lot more recently in their sort of bid to find goals because they'd struggled for those early part of the season. Do you think this again is going to play into their hands? Because and, and are they going to be capable of getting back to the levels of intensity they showed at the start of the season? Because when they met at Anfield, Arsenal came out with the right intentions and right ideas to play, but Liverpool were just too intense for them and blew them away, winning very comfortably, didn't they? It's, it's going to be an interesting one, isn't it, to see whether Arteta approaches it in that way. It's like you say, they, they needed more goals and it maybe opened up a bit more. And I think Odegaard's had a really positive impact on their sort of attacking play since he came in. Um, 
But, you know, will he sort of revert to type in the sense of, you know, coming up against Liverpool? I know they haven't fared that well this season, but they'll think, OK, they'll want to dominate possession. They'll come here and have a lot of it. So do we sit in and, it, you know, it, it's a it's a tactic that's worked well for him against Liverpool in recent history, isn't it? You know, the, the, not just a win at the back end of last season, but also in the Community Shield, Liverpool had a lot of the ball there and struggled to do anything with it. So you, you just think Carteta will probably be tempted to go down that route, which for Liverpool, obviously, you know, a lot of their struggles have been at home this season. You know, they're still on a horrible losing run at Anfield. But to have a sort of similar test to that away from home, a, a team that's maybe going to sit in and, and try and frustrate them, that actually might be a good thing for them to, if they can pass it and they can do well um, and, and get some goals despite coming up against a mass defence, then, you know, it might give them some confidence to take back to Anfield for the rest of the season and, and feel like they can they can unlock teams again. So, it's an interesting one. It'd be interesting just to see how Arsenal approach it and whether if, if it is that sort of defensive mindset and Arteta feels he has to go down that route, that whether Liverpool can can take anything from it in terms of confidence. Yeah, personally, I, I think Arsenal will probably come out and play. Uh, the, so, sort of stepped away from the back three thing for the second half of this season and certainly against Tottenham recently at the Emirates did play with a back four, but now expect a, a back three, given I've said <laughs> that. But we'll have to wait and see how it plays out. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Let's get on then to our, our team selection as we begin to wrap things up then. Uh, Alison Becker in goal, I'll, I'll call that one. Uh, Doyley, you can uh, you can lead us on the defence. Well, you can kind of base the, the, the team selection largely on who stayed. At, uh, and at least said Melwood then. They can stay at Melwood, but... Knocking on people's houses. Um, at Kirby, yeah. So I think I'll be going Trent, the former England international. Um <laughs> I know, I know, we've 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 done podcasts since then, but really, um, <laughs> uh, it's like as if England haven't got enough world class players. They can just go, you know what? We don't need one of our very few world class players. It's uh, it, it's it's well, I mean, you could argue they won the three games, didn't they, against me, mighty San Marino? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. San Marino can be difficult in those first. I thought games, I saw myself playing out there. To be fair, <laughs> <laughs> England had trouble with San Marino in the past. Um, yeah, what was the question? Oh, yeah, Alexander Arnold <laughs> at right back, uh, Phillips and and Kabak at centre back, and I'm going with Simakas at left back. Right, okay, what do you make of that, Lynchy? Yeah, interesting. Is he, is he definitely, yeah, he's, he's definitely fit. He, plays, he, played for, he made some sub appearances for Greece in the uh, in the World Cup qualifiers. He certainly yeah. made one, let's put it that way. Yeah, he got subbed uh, off though, didn't he? Did he have cramp or something? I think. Oh, I um, I, I at least, it, at least it means Scotland's best left back will still be on the pitch, eh? Let's not start that. <laughs> um, so I, I think I think he'll Simicast really struggling to get a look in at the moment, so I, I think he will go with Robertson. To be honest, I think. Um, if, if not nothing else but to, to prove Guy wrong and hope for a strong Robertson performance at left back then yeah I think I'll go for Robertson there and then obviously the rest of the, the back four I, I would agree with Doyley yeah with no Theo Squires on the pod I thought I'd, I'd come out of a ridiculous shout so I can get the oh, <laughs> mail sent that's terrible you can't say that he's not here to defend himself yeah, he will, be, he, he will be soon enough and he'll be he'll be back <laughs> with some big some big calls anyway uh, <laughs> what, about, what about the midfield um, um, oh, sorry. Oh, it's, yeah, I said Lynchy, that's my name. I was too busy laughing at the Theo comment. <laughs> um, 
yeah, in midfield, I think, yeah, what we were talking about with Fabinho, I think he's going to struggle to to pull him out of that midfield. And he'll think, obviously, he's not been on international duty this week, so should be able to do the two games back-to-back, no problem. So I think Wijnaldum's, obviously, Wijnaldum's another one, seems to start every game, doesn't he? So can't see beyond him. And then I think Thiago as well, I think he la- I think he wants to maybe get that, that unit together and, and play as much football together as possible to to you know, give him some rhythm going into the game against Real Madrid. He, you know, he might look to maybe make some substitutions early with one one eye on that game. But I think he'll he'll want another start maybe for that unit just to, you know, give him a test against a, a strong Arsenal side and, and hopefully that can sort of tee them up to play well against Real Madrid. Thiago v Granite Xhaka, that'll be an exhibition of tackling, won't it? But we'll have to <laughs> see how that one plays out. Doily, what about the forward line then? Oh, well, hang on. What about the midfield? Okay, what about your midfield then? Okay, yeah, yeah. my midfield. Wacky midfield, let's go. Oh, yeah, that, that, that wacky midfield with the old... Wait until you hear these names of these players who've played hundreds of games. Soon in Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Steve McMahon. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> right, uh, Fabinho, yeah. Because, uh, as I say, all the players, most of the, I'm going to look at almost all of the players who, who stayed at Mel, uh, do it again, who stayed at Kirby, then they'll be they'll be involved. Which means I'm going to go with James Milner and Naby Keita in midfield. Right. Okay. I think Keita probably deserves a start, and I think Milner has been not underused, but he, he's he's ripe for 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 playing a game, and he, and he does quite like playing at the Emirates actually. Yeah, I, I was going to suggest with that whether... shout on Cater. That's yeah. It's a, just because, like I said, Barnaldum's played so much football, it's it's almost ludicrous, isn't it? So, Cater dropping in is a is a really good shout, actually. Yeah, I was going to suggest whether Cater might play in the Bernabeu, but I suppose we'll we'll have to wait and wait and see how it plays out. Uh, Doyle, come back to you then. You can uh, you can tell us what the forward three is going to be. Now, it's Firmino's definitely going to play up front. That's what I think, anyway. Uh, down the middle. Um, I think Jota will play on the left. Now, it's who will play on the right. It's either going to be Salah or Mane. And I think he'll have to play Salah. He'll have to play Salah. So Salah on the right, Jota on the left, and Firmino down the middle. Right, OK. Well, Firmino's got a great record against Arsenal, hasn't he? I thought you were going to pick Mane, then cutting him from the right at the Emirates and smashing one into the top. Five years form. ago now. Five years yeah. ago now. Stop living on past glories. As an Arsenal fan, you'd be used to right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Lindsay, what so about your thoughts? the Liverpool report. Just the 30 years <laughs> in between winning the Leeds. Um, We're halfway there. It's a tough one, isn't it, up front? Because I think... You know, will he want to capitalise on the fact that Jota's in form, but then with you know, in that same breath, will he want to sort of save him for Real Madrid? Um, I think it's a really, really tough one. Um, I think maybe maybe he'll go with with Jota, Mane, Salah, just thinking that Firmino is so so integral as a big game player in 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 his mind, and I think Real Madrid just with the wanting to keep their centre-halves occupied and, and busy and keep them honest. You'll maybe want to start Firmino in that one. So I think maybe the, the other front three maybe starts this one and then he's got a really tough decision about who keeps the place alongside Firmino against Real Madrid. It's a, it's a difficult one. That I, I'm glad I don't have to pick the team. No, uh, David, I'll come back to you then for match prediction. What's the score going to be? Uh, I'm going to say, I think it's going to be, I, I, I think... I think Arsenal are going to make it difficult for them, but I'm going to say one all. One apiece. Right, Doyle, yourself? I mean, it's a long way to, to Arsenal from my house. 
is what I'm thinking right now. So um, <laughs> the, <laughs> that's the spirit. <laughs> well, I was there. Yeah, uh, right. I agree. Arsenal make it very difficult. I think it all depends on how Arsenal approach the game. I know you've mentioned it before. And I think they might go defensive again, you know. But mm. the only thing on top of that is because Arsenal are kind of out of the, certainly out of the running for the top four after the mm. game against West Ham. And they're still in Europe, and they've got a game. It's, it's not till Thursday, Slav- is it? It's Slavia, Slavia, Slavia Prague, Prague, yeah. Um, I th- I've got a feeling they might actually just, as, as Guy said, who, who knows a bit or two about Arsenal, I think I think they might go for it, and I think that might help Liverpool. So I'm going to go for two on to Liverpool. Right. Okay. We'll have to wait and see how it ha- see how it plays out. We'll be, we will be back with the. <laughs> Blubber podcast on Monday. If you want to know my prediction, you'll have to tune into the uh, Behind Enemy Lines podcast that's coming on the Blood Red feed hey, on Saturday. Are you interviewing yourself? I'm not yeah. interviewing myself. No, no, no. Kai, Kai has stepped into the reach and uh, yeah, I've given the lowdown on Arsenal. So uh, yeah, if you're joining us on YouTube, head over to uh, our podcast feed, the Blood Red podcast feed, wherever it is. You get your audio on demand and give that a listen. That'll be with you from uh, Saturday morning but from us here on the Blood Red Podcast that's all we've got time for now my thanks to David Lynch and to Ian Doyle and to you for joining us thank you you've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo doesn't have to stop here if you have any questions suggestions or feedback head over right now to twitter and facebook and like share and get involved join us next time please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice the opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.